Hi, this is Chris Young. Welcome to episode 43 of Contemplating a Life. In a previous series of episodes, I described my school experiences from kindergarten to high school, attending a special ed school, as well as my neighborhood high school. Now it's time to go to college. I mentioned many times that I attended IUPUI, but if you aren't from central Indiana, you're probably saying, what the hell is that? The acronym stands for Indiana University, Purdue University at Indianapolis. So it's a combination of the two largest state-supported universities in Indiana. Or I guess I should say it was. Earlier this year, IU and Purdue had a bit of falling out, and they dissolved the partnership. Let's talk about the parent schools for a second. Indiana University has its primary campus in Bloomington, Indiana, a little over an hour's drive south of Indianapolis. There are several satellite campuses around the state, and the largest one was in Indianapolis. In addition to being a liberal arts program at the downtown campus, the IU Law School, School of Medicine, and School of Nursing are based in Indianapolis. Purdue University is in West Lafayette, that's about halfway between India and Chicago. Purdue has an excellent agricultural research program, but it's more famous for its science and engineering programs, especially aerospace. A total of 25 astronauts have attended Purdue University, including Neil Armstrong and Gene Cernan, who were the first and the last men to walk on the moon so far. The Indianapolis extension consisted of just two buildings on 38th Street across from the Indiana State Fairgrounds. In 1969, these two Indianapolis extensions were combined into a single institution known as Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. At the time, it held the distinction of being the longest-named university in the United States. That record is now held by are you ready for this? California Polytechnics State University at San Luis Obispo. <laughs> anyway, even an acronym, IUPUI, is a mouthful. At one point in its early history, people referred to it as Uipui, apparently an attempt to pronounce IUI followed by PUI. Over the years, new science and engineering buildings were constructed at the downtown campus, and the Purdue programs on 38th Street were moved to the new buildings downtown. But that move occurred after I graduated. IUPUI is often described as a commuter college, in that very few students live on campus. Most live in their own homes or apartments somewhere in the city and attend classes by driving to school. IUPUI is a university full of parking spaces and not dormitories. The term commuter college should not be construed to imply it's a community college. No, by far, it's a renowned research institution of higher learning with distinguished alumni of its own. It supports vibrant research and programs in a variety of fields. It saddens me that every school I ever attended has been dissolved. IPS number 97, James E. Roberts School for the Handicaps, was closed in 1986 
and eventually turned into an apartment building. Northwest High School was converted to a junior high, and most of the classes I attended at IUPUI were on the 38th Street campus because that's where the Purdue programs were located. When everything moved downtown, the 38th Street buildings were torn down, and now they're used as overflow parking for the Indiana State Fairgrounds. So now that the merger of the IUI and PUI has been dissolved, even IUPUI no longer exists. And I'm not really sure who got what in the divorce between the two institutions, or how that's going to work on a practical level. Even though I attended something called IUPUI, my diploma says Purdue University, awarded at Indiana University, Purdue University at Indianapolis. So I got a Purdue degree, not an IUPUI degree. And to get a degree in the School of Science, like I did, you're required to take some liberal arts courses to make you a well-rounded individual and not just a science nerd. I took classes like U.S. History, French, Psychology, and Sociology at the downtown campus. But my math and science classes were all at 38th Street. So my question is, if getting a Purdue degree at the new Purdue in Indianapolis, does Purdue offer liberal arts classes that now duplicate those offered by the new Indiana University at Indianapolis? Obviously, if you were in West Lafayette at Purdue, they would have liberal arts. But it looks to me like the split is going to be more expensive for the state if Purdue is going to have to duplicate all of those classes here in Indianapolis when they're being offered right across the street at an IUI building. Late update after writing this script, I found an FAQ that explains more details about which programs are moving where. You will be able to transfer credits between the two institutions. Purdue students can take IU classes and vice versa. I put links in the description. Anyway, enough rambling about IU and Purdue. Let's talk about my experiences there. IUPUI was my only practical choice. I couldn't imagine living on campus and having to deal with hiring caregivers that wasn't used to being away from home. So I would live at home and commute like most people. At Northwest, I took the PSAT test my junior year, but I don't remember the results. I found a copy of my SAT results that I took my senior year. I got 540 verbal and 620 math. You may recall in my article, The Reunion, I found a way to cheat on an IQ test one time because it was designed so that the answers on one side of the page lined up with the answers on the other side of the page. The designers of the PSAT and SAT were smarter than that, so I had to take these tests legitimately. But I certainly had my eye open for that opportunity. The Indiana Department of Vocational Rehabilitation, known as Voc Rehab, paid for my tuition. The application process wasn't very involved. I've heard stories of kids with Duchenne muscular dystrophy being denied help from their state rehab agency because they felt the kid wouldn't live very long. As I mentioned, most kids with DMD rarely make it into their mid-20s. 
never to 30. But there were no such concerns expressed about my potential lifespan or lack thereof. I'd fly to IUPUI with nothing but my grade transcript, which was about a B average, and my SAT scores. In those days, colleges and universities didn't require things like a written essay. And I don't think at state schools like IU and Purdue, that's required even today. I think that's just for those prestigious private schools. State schools are just not that picky about admissions. I was confident I would be accepted. So when I got my acceptance letter, naturally I was very happy. But it wasn't one of those jump up and down screaming moments like you see on YouTube. I guess I never really thought about what I would do if I wasn't accepted. My only other options would be private colleges, such as Butler University or Marion College. But Voc Rehab will only pay state school tuition rates. If you go to a private school, you have to make up the difference. I don't think my family could have afforded that. Sometime during the summer, I met with a guidance counselor at IUPUI who was a math professor. We picked out my first semester classes. I wanted a degree in computer science, which at the time did not yet exist at IUPUI. But there were promises that one would be established in about a year. So initially, I was considered a math major, and that was a big mistake because they wouldn't let me take any programming classes my first semester. That caused big problems later on. I took a college-level algebra class because I wasn't confident in my algebra skills from high school. For a school of science degree, this course was considered a remedial course, and I would not get math credit for it. You have to have so many hours worth of math. I said, that's okay. I still feel like I need the course before I try to tackle calculus. Once I was in the class, I realized it was a lot easier than I expected, and I easily got an A. I really liked the teacher. One time he called on me and asked me if I had the right answer on a particular problem. I said, I probably did. He replied, this is not a probability class. You either got the right answer or you didn't. That cracked me up, along with the entire class. He followed up by saying, commit to your answers. Even if you're wrong, you'll learn something. But don't give me this wishy-washy, I might be right. It was a good lesson to remember. I took a physics class and a creative writing class. There must have been one or two other classes, but I don't recall what they were. The writing class was a bit of a joke. The assignments were really strange. It was hard to figure out what he was looking for. The teaching assistant they had who was teaching it was a pretty strange guy. After about three weeks, he announced that three people would be leaving the class because they had taken a test to test out of it. He didn't offer that option to test out to anyone who didn't get an A on the first assignment. What I didn't know was I could have taken a writing test over the summer and skip the class entirely. There'd be another option to take the test two-thirds of the way through the semester. I got A's on all my following assignments, and he let me take the test, which I passed. So I got to skip the last third of the semester. 
for the first semester or perhaps two, I forget how long. My mom drove me back and forth each day. Eventually, we persuaded Voc Rehab to pay for transportation. A wheelchair van service called Caravan would pick me up in the morning and drive me to the 38th Street campus. I'd take classes all afternoon, some early evening classes, and then they would bring me home at the end of the day. So getting accepted to college was relatively easy. Getting into college, that is, getting into the buildings and getting around, that was a different story. The 38th Street campus consisted of two buildings separated by Coliseum Avenue. That's the street that runs perpendicular to 38th Street and leads into the main entrance of the fairgrounds. To the west of that street was the Cranert Building, or K Building, which consisted of classrooms, labs, and offices. To the east of Coliseum Avenue was the Administration Building, or A Building, which housed administration offices, a library, a large classroom for architectural drawing, lots of drafting tables set up, and a couple of other small classrooms in the basement. But it also housed the computer center. On Coliseum Avenue, there was a Burger Chef fast food restaurant between the two buildings. The back half of the Burger Chef building also contains some offices for the psychology department. But I never went in the psych building in the whole four and a half years I was there. I had a difficult time trying to find photos of these buildings, which were torn down a few years ago. The YouTube version of today's podcast includes a couple of photos and a map I created that shows where in the parking lot that exists today the buildings were originally located. The K building was three stories tall, plus a basement. However, the first floor wasn't at ground level. It was up a half a flight of stairs. So the only way into the building by wheelchair was through the loading dock. There was a long, well-built wheelchair ramp leading up to the loading platform. Then you would get on a freight elevator and go down to the basement. From there, I would transfer to the passenger elevator to get access to the three main floors. The freight elevator had large, manually operated doors that slid up and down, and then the grill door that you would slide side to side by hand. There was no way I could operate that elevator on my own. They gave me my own keys, which would call the freight elevator if it wasn't at the loading dock. However, if it was in the basement and someone left the doors open, whoever was with me would have to go into the building, go down to the basement, close the elevator doors manually, and then bring it back up to the loading dock. Inside the building, the passenger elevator was a regular, fully automated elevator. But to call it, you had to have keys. Once you were inside, you just pushed the button to go to which of the three floors or the basement you wanted to go to. My dad built the gadget for me. He took a long, half-inch diameter dial rod and mounted the key on the end of it. With great difficulty, I could sometimes get the key in and turn it myself, but then I had to get the key back out again by the time the doors opened, drive into the elevator, and then use the stick's other end to push the button. Sometimes I'd have trouble getting the key out, and the elevator would come and go before I could get in.
So I just gave up on that plan. I carried the keys on a keychain. I would get somebody walking by to insert the key and turn it for me. Initially, I didn't have them wait around. When the elevator arrived, I would go in and push the button with my long stick. Unfortunately, one day, I got on the elevator, dropped the stick, and couldn't push the buttons. I had to wait until someone else, such as a staff member, called the elevator so I could get out. After that incident, whenever I asked someone to call the elevator for me, I'd have them wait till it arrived, reach in and push the button. They didn't need to ride with me, just push the button, I could get out on my own. People were very generous with their help. And a lot of the times, when I was going somewhere, I had friends with me who would do it. We didn't have a cafeteria with food service. We just had a big lunchroom full of tables and chairs and a small room next to it full of vending machines. You could get a horrible microwave pizza or a stale ham sandwich. Most of the time, I would pack a lunch. My favorite choice was my mom's famous tuna salad sandwiches but I had no way to refrigerate it. By the time I got around to eating the sandwich, the mayonnaise would separate, and the oil would soak into the bread, making it a soggy mess. It's a wonder I didn't get food poisoning from stale mayonnaise. As I mentioned, there was a burger chef between the two buildings. Occasionally, we'd get somebody to make a run over there and bring back some food. I think about my third year they established something called the Office of Handicapped Student Services. They had a volunteer who would run to the burger chef for me and half a dozen other disabled students. Burger chef gave them a printed notepad with the menu on it, like the ones that the people behind the counter would use to take orders. So we would just check off what we wanted. Someone would take that slip over there and hand it to them. Of course, that still didn't ensure that they got their order right every time. The cave building also had a rather large rec room with pinball machines, pool tables, a foosball table, and other tables that were used for card games or chess games. One time, I drew up a sketch of a spring-loaded pool cue that I was going to have my dad build so I could play pool, but we never got around to building it. I don't think it would have worked anyway. My friend Rich and I would play pinball together. I'd pull my wheelchair up to one side, and I could push the left flipper button, and he would push the right one. Now, access to the A building was also via a loading dock. That ramp was a little bit scarier. You had to drive your wheelchair very close to the edge of the loading dock to get onto the elevator. There was no railing, and it would have been easy to drive your wheelchair off the edge of the loading dock and plunging about two and a half feet down. The elevator was one of those freight elevators that come up out of the ground through folding doors. A very loud alarm bell would ring all the way up. It was almost deafening to ride the elevator up to the loading dock from the basement, with that bell ringing and bouncing around the middle walls of the elevator. My fraternity would take people up and down on the elevator blindfolded as part of their hazing ritual. More on my frat experience later on. Again, this elevator had to be manually operated 
with sliding grates for doors. Not only were the doors manually operated, for this one, you had to hold in the push button continuously to make the elevator move. Once inside the basement, you could take another automatic passenger elevator to the first floor where the computer rooms were, or the second floor where the library was. As I mentioned previously, I didn't take a computer class my first semester, so I didn't have much opportunity or need to go across the street to the Yale building. But eventually I did need to frequently go to the computer center. And by that time, they had rebuilt the ramp, extended the loading dock, and added a safety railing. The computer center housed two of the three available computers, an IBM 36044 and an IBM 1620. More about them in a later episode. There were also about a half dozen 026 and 029 key punch machines you could use to type your programs on the punch cards. Although I occasionally use these machines, most of my programming I used the third computer which was housed at the downtown campus. There was a row of about a dozen teletype machines in the computer room and two CRT terminals available for connecting to the downtown machine. Now, I didn't always have to go across the street to access the teletypes. There were two teletype machines hidden away in the cave building. One was in a locked closet under a stairway. My friend Mike knew how to jimmy the lock to get it open. You didn't really have to pick the lock. You just had to slide a credit card between the door jam and the door and push back the latch. Once you were inside, people presumed you had permission to be there, and they didn't question you. The other teletype in the cave building was in a small room called the Calculations Lab. It housed some very expensive mechanical adding machines that were capable of doing multiplication and division completely mechanically. They made a terrible racket when they ran. There was also a very sophisticated programmable electronic adding machine that could be programmed by sliding magnetic stripe cards through a slot. Now keep in mind this was years before the personal computer had been invented. All of the teletypes were the classic ASR-33 teletypes. The one in the calc lab had a paper tape punch machine on the side. It was identical to the one my friend Dennis had carried down the stairs at Northwest High School for me to use to run programs. We previously talked about the fact that this was the same equipment that Bill Gates used to write his first commercial product, a basic interpreter. All the teletypes were connected by dedicated phone lines to a digital equipment corporation, Dex System 10 computer, downtown in the Student Union building. Although I didn't have any computer classes my first semester, I knew people who did. They would loan me their project programmer number and password, or PPN, as it was called. If you're old enough to remember the CompuServe online network, you had a PPN to log into their service. That's because CompuServe ran on Deck 10 computers as well. We would use the teletypes 
to play a variety of text-based computer games. The most popular were a submarine warfare game and a Star Trek game. See links in the description for more info about the Star Trek game. I wrote a small program in the basic language to print out the words of the 12 days of Christmas. I only typed in the words to each day one time, and then it would go through a series of nested loops to print out the words to each verse, adding a line each time. Every time it typed the phrase, five golden rings, it would ring the bell on the teletype machine five times. The teletype typed so slowly, you would almost sing along with the words as it was typing them out, line by line. So even though I didn't have any computer classes my first semester, it was a pretty enjoyable experience. I made some great friends we'll talk about in future episodes. Next week, we'll talk more about my second and third semesters. Third semester, I spent at the downtown campus picking up several liberal arts classes. I had quite an adventure there. If you find this podcast educational, entertaining, enlightening, or even inspiring, consider sponsoring me on Patreon for just $5 per month. You'll get early access to the podcast and other exclusive content. Although I have some financial struggles, I'm not really in this for the money, but every little bit helps. My deepest thanks, as always, to my financial supporters. Your support pays for the writing seminar I attend and some other things. But it also shows how much you care and appreciate what I'm doing. It means more to me than I could ever express. Even if you cannot provide financial support, please post links and share the podcast on social media so I can grow my audience. I just want more people to hear my stories. All of my back episodes are available, and I encourage you to check them out if you're new to the podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or other feedback, please feel free to comment on any of the platforms where you find the podcast. I'll see you next week as we continue contemplating life. Until then, fly safe.